The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Jason Pfeiffer, editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. He is exposed to so many things a year that I was convinced he would have great recommendations for me about what I should read and do in 2023. And he had a very unique take on recommendations. Some of his recommendations were simply advice that he plans on doing in 2023. And we also discussed other topics of interest like should one renew old hobbies and passions. It's very hard to do as an adult because I, for one, feel guilty when I'm not working and when I'm doing a hobby or trying to get better at a hobby. So we talked about that. But Jason Pfeiffer, editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, exposed to so many things, great recommendations. I immediately bought four of his recommendations while he was talking. Sorry, Jason. Here it is. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. If you were, like, obviously you played bass as a kid, you were in a band as a kid. If you were now to say, you know what, I want to get better at bass, do you think, how would you go about doing it? Like you, you said, this is an old passion of yours. Yeah. I want to refresh it. I'm probably not as good as when I was a kid. I want to get as good as that. How would you go about it? Okay. Well, this is not entirely a hypothetical because I, I, I am, I'm not that committed to being very good at this. It's really more of just a way to escape, uh, you know, the things that I'm, uh, all the work and stress of the day. Everything you want to get better at, by the way, is an escape. Yeah, that's true. That's a fair way of putting it. So I'll tell you, I was at a music store in the heart of the pandemic, and I saw this little bass hanging on the wall, but it wasn't a full-blown electric guitar bass. You know, uh, it was this tiny little ukulele-sized thing. It's called a U-bass, and it's by a company called Kala. Kala? I don't even know. K-A-L-A. And I picked it up, and it is this nice light thing and the strings if i don't know if anybody if anybody's ever played a bass you know that the strings are they're very heavy metal strings and they take a lot of forearm strength to to push down and i will tell you and i'm a little embarrassed to tell you but um in my old soft age here i do not have the forearm strength to play the regular bass the way that i did as a teenager like i just i cannot hold those strings down for long and be really nimble on them my my arm um uh, like my arm gets all tense so this little guy with the light strings 
is very easy to play and it's really delightful. And here, I don't know if in case we're actually going to use this recording, I'm just going to play. This is what this is what it sounds like. It sounds uh, great. Right, a little white stripes there. Like that is a good sounding bass and it's delightful. So anyway, here's what I here's step one. Step one of getting of regaining um some kind of capacity at something that you used to know how to do is make it very available. Because what I have found is that for the first year or so that I owned this little Kala U bass, I had it in its case because I was afraid that my kids were gonna grab it and break it. But as a result, there was friction. There was a barrier to entry. I I almost never took it out of its case to play. So I hung it on my wall. But it, but it was easily available. It was right there in your it house. Was literally, it was in the case. It was literally next to my desk, but it was in the case. And so, so... So that was the bar. That made it too unavailable. That's right. Any kind of friction. Well, because also here's the thing. It's not just that it's unavailable. It's also that it's out of sight. So if you... if Now that it's on the wall, I see it every single time I come in and out of my office. And it calls to me. It says, I'm here. And also, I find that I can just... I, I, I don't have 30 minutes to jam on the bass, but I do have like two minutes between a phone call. And so that's now what, what I'll do sometimes is I'll grab it. Or sometimes I'll be on the phone and I'll, 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 put, my, I'll put them on mute because they're just talking, 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 and I'll kind of fiddle with the bass. And I find that just having it there having it there to remind you that it is there and that it is a low time investment engagement, that by itself creates a habit and the habit will allow you to regain the, the kind of muscle memory of what it was like to play it. And maybe the love for it as well. Oh, totally. Also that too. Yes, love for it. Because you will, I, that little White Stripes thing that I, that I just played you, I, I heard that song like last week. And I thought, that's a great bass line. And so I figured out how to play it really fast. And now I am excited to pick it up and just like do it every and be like, oh, I can still play the White Stripes bass line. Uh, there, is, there is something I, I think you cannot overstate the importance of, of decreasing friction for anything that is not a regular part of your routine. If you want something, if you want to really build something into what you do, then you have to make it as widely available to yourself as possible, or you simply will not do it. This is the reason why people always say like, you know, if you're interested in trying a new thing, don't make it so large of a commitment that you're afraid to do it at all. Like make it a tiny right. commitment. So, so availability yeah. is important. Tiny goals, tiny goals. Important. Uh, and so, let's, so, so like, for instance, I always say, like when I was a kid, I played the piano, like I took mm -hmm. piano lessons my whole childhood and I became successful at playing very pop. I liked playing pop music, like anything that was top 10 song back then. Yeah. I liked to play on the piano just to be, just to be popular. Totally. And, sure. Nobody wants to hear that, your, your little, uh, you know, ditties. They yeah. want the stuff they know. And, and, and so, but I've lost that skill. That was a long time ago since I was, you know, since I last took a piano lesson mm -hmm. and I have a, we have like an electronic keyboard, a cheap electronic keyboard in the basement. And I always say to myself, oh, one day I'll take lessons again or I'll practice again. But because it's in the basement, to me that I thought that was available, but it's not like I should put it like right in my office or right yes. outside my office. And what would be a tiny goal? I guess a tiny goal would be get sheet music of a song I used to be able to play and just play it. Yes. Or maybe there should be a tinier goal than that even. Like, I don't know. Uh, here were the, here were the first original goals for me. It was 
feel competent at some part of this. Right? Mm-hmm. Like regain some amount of competence because there is look we're busy people now right like when we were learning how to do this it was like filling time that we had to fill and now you know you and i and everyone everyone every adult has many demands on their time and so everything is now in competition for limited capacity so if you're going to get involved in something i think that you need to prove to yourself that there is some kind of satisfaction that comes out of it. And to me, satisfaction is derived from competency. So the very first thing that I did when I sat down with the bait, when I bought this thing, is I, I thought to myself, what did I used to really like to play? Like, what, what songs did I just know? Uh, like, Green Day's Longview is just a great bass line. And I was like, I, I, I knew how to play that as a teenager. Can I do that again? And so I, I went and I just looked up the tabs for it and uh and I I was okay at it and then I just kind of worked at it for a day or two until I was pretty good at it and that excited me enough to want to sit down and do more of it and I think you you right. have to start by rebuilding stuff that just excites you because you can see the gains you have to be able to see some sort of gain in order to feel like this is a valuable investment of your time and that you'll recapture whatever it was about it that you used to love. So availability, uh, tiny goals. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's hard to define, but we're trying to. And then, but, but part of the reason is, and this is a little separate, is but you need to see any gains in order yeah. to continue. If you don't see any gains, there's no point. Now, I will mention, though, do you know the Warren Buffett 525 rule? I don't. That's what it's called. I don't know if it truly comes from Warren Buffett. Yeah. There's some question, but I believe it does. So someone asked him, you know, Warren, how do you get done all the things you get done? And Warren Buffett said, let me, it was like a janitor. And Warren mm-hmm. said, let me tell you what you should do. Make a list of the 25 things you love to do the most, or you would love to be better at the most. Make that list right now. So the guy makes the list and Warren Buffett says, okay, now turn it into two lists the first five and the next 20. You love all of these things. You love all 25, but make these two lists, five and 20. Now take the list of 20, throw it away, and never look at those 20 <laughs> things ever again. And the guy's like, but Warren, I do love those things. They're on the list of my top 25 things that I love. And he said, if you try to do all 25, you will never succeed in any You won't do any of them. Only yeah. focus for the rest of your life on the top five. It doesn't have to be the rest of your life, but right now, only focus on those top five, any minute you spend on the bottom 20 of the 25 is time you're taking away from the top five things you want to get better at. Mm. So, so the other thing is that bass playing, like getting better at bass has to be in your top five, not just your top 25. Would you say it's in your top five? So this is very interesting. Um, I, okay. Like, like I have, I have, just, a, just I have, a, I have an myself. emotionally... I have an emotionally complicated answer to that question. And that is that I have stepped back and looked at myself and what I have evolved into. And I have realized that somewhere along the way, hobbies and interests disappeared from my life. Yes. Like I became so work focused and I love my work, right? Like all my goals are kind of tied up in my work such that I don't really have hobbies or interests. I don't have a, 
I used it when I was a teenager. I had a lot of T-shirts of things that I loved, you know, <laughs> like um, bands that I loved, that I was passionate about, and sports teams that I was passionate about. I have nothing to put on a T-shirt anymore because everything is just sort of tied up in work, and that made me feel a little sad. And I and so reconnecting with something old like this. It, it wasn't something that I would have ever told you, this is in the top five of things that I, uh, I, I really care about, right? I mean, when I think of the things that aren't in my life, but that I would really like to regain, they're all kind of impractical things that, I, that are just not within reach because like what? travel, like, okay. you know, because I have a small, I have two small children. I cannot travel internationally with my wife, which I love. We loved that before we have kids, before we had kids. And that's just, it's impractical. You can't do it anymore. So that is just off to the side right now. I just, you're not going to regain it. So I am trying to find little ways in to parts of my life that I either have lost contact with or that I feel like can expand me in ways that I'm not currently thinking about. And before you build off of that, because I bet that you have something smart to say about it, the Warren Buffett thing reminded me of, have you ever heard about the, this kind of somewhat famous experiment about jelly sampling at a grocery store? <laughs> Do you know what no. I'm talking about? So, okay. So this was about exploring what happens when people have a small or large amount of choice. This was an experiment that a Columbia University professor did at some point. Was um, so she had students pose as representatives of a jelly company and uh, and doing a sample tasting at a grocery store. Okay, so you know you go into a grocery store. This, we see this all the time. You go into the grocery store and there's somebody standing there, kind of handing out samples of whatever random thing they have. It's um, you know it could be olive oil. You dip something in it. And so they were sampling jellies. And, and I don't have the numbers exactly right here, so I'll just kind of make them up for the purposes of it, but it's, it's roughly what I'm telling you. So actually, let's just, we'll go with Warren Buffett. So every hour they would alternate where they would have like, let's say 25 jellies, different kinds of jelly, different flavors of jelly on this table that somebody could come by and sample, right? I don't know. Maybe you dip a spoon into it and you taste the jelly. And then on the alternating hour, they would have five jellies. So you go back and forth between 25 jellies to sample and five jellies to sample. What is the result of this? The result is over the course of time, or they did this for like days, is that when there were 25 jellies on the table, more people came by and sampled jelly. But when there were five jellies on the table, more people bought jelly. So when there were more choices, people came by and engaged with those choices, but they couldn't make a decision about those choices, and so they didn't buy anything. Whereas when there were fewer choices, there were fewer people interested in sampling those choices, but the people who did sample were more likely to buy. Let's put this ourselves in the mind of like a businessman who just hears this. Yeah. Whether it's a store owner or a product maker, what's the takeaway? How can I practically use this to make more money? I think the answer is that what you need to do is make sure that you truly understand what your consumer wants and where your efforts are most maximized. Because I would bet that if you look at any range of products, there are some real hero products that drive probably the majority of the revenue. And then there is a lot of, you know, smaller products that better have a good purpose. Maybe they're kind of entry points for people or they're upsells or whatever they are. But I think that a smart business person could probably look at what they're offering and 
realize that they are stretching themselves too thin in directions that are not actually all that valuable for them or their consumer, and that they should instead cut back on the things that aren't working as well and then figure out how to create more value for the people that are their core consumer. So like if I'm a car dealer, Mm -hmm. I mean, this sounds a little like the 80-20 rule as well. So like if I'm a car dealer, let's say I have a car dealership, I should figure out the 20% of the cars that create 80% of the revenues and just have those in the showroom rather than like a, uh, like a hundred choices of cars. Well, you know, that's, so cars are, I feel like a tricky, let me, cars feel tricky to me. And the reason for that is because I don't know exactly what the volume is on that business and what it means to have one car in instead of another. But let's let's take a restaurant, because I feel like actually a restaurant is probably easier because you can understand the supply chain decisions of the restaurant easier, right? Which is to say, everything that's on a restaurant menu, you have to have the ingredients to make that in the kitchen. So every time that you put something onto the menu, you have to make sure that you can make it. And so then, you know, questions that you run if you're running a restaurant are, every new thing that I'm adding, does this get built off of existing ingredients that I have in the kitchen already, which at this point now is a kind of low stakes addition, or does it require me bringing something new into the kitchen, which now is more high stakes because now I'm investing something more. I bet that if you looked at restaurant menus, what you would find is that, you know, unless it's McDonald's, at which point they have this granularly down to the grain of of salt. Um, But if you're just looking at like an independent restaurant that, you know, isn't running through the kind of analysis that a big corporation is, I bet that they probably have a lot of waste on their menus. These are things that are on the menu that not a lot of people are ordering and that are requiring them to bring in ingredients that aren't moving as much and also that create additional complexities in training the staff and that you could probably cut down on those menu items and then save money on inventory and save money on training for staff and make everyone just as happy. And then once you- or happier. That's right. Or happier because they don't because, have that anxiety of choice. Totally. Like going to the Cheesecake Factory and it takes you 45 minutes to decide. I was just going to say the Cheesecake Factory <laughs> is a stressful experience for me. Yes, it is. It's an awful experience. Way too much on that menu. But, and, and, but I think I think yeah. the interesting thing here, though, is in terms of choice is that that's it is related to this Warren Buffett 525 rule. Like, oh, should I get better at the base? Should I get... Should I write my next book? Should I do a podcast? Should I get better at the piano? Should I spend time with my... like? If you limit like the things you love and want to get better at the five things, it, it it'll make you happier. It'll be less stressful because you won't be feel like you're failing at twenty of them or all of them. Mm-hmm. And you know it, it it applies to like this you know the activity of getting better at something or how you spend your time as well. It you know it, it reminds me. I, yes, I agree with all that. It reminds me of okay. I there was this guy who reached out to me years ago. Um, he's the founder. Founder, uh, you, <laughs> he was the founder of a company called Crown and Caliber. Uh, do you do that too? Maybe, maybe uh, I forgot. Crown and Caliber is a watch company, and I think they've been acquired by Hodinkee at this point. I could be wrong, but Crown and Caliber they would refurbish and flip watches. Uh, so they would buy wa- like antique or cool watches or whatever. I am getting this a little wrong, and then they would resell them. And the guy reaches out to me and he told me, "I'd like to tell you about this experience I had where I brought in a COO." who was previously a drill sergeant and how he basically whipped this company into shape. And he said, one of the big, so I said, cool, let's talk about that. And he said, one of the 
big challenges that he had was that he was saying yes to everything. So if a, you know, if a customer wanted something or if they saw some new business opportunity, he just kept saying yes, 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 yes to everything. And then the drill sergeant COO comes in and one of the first things he does is he says, let's sit down and put on a whiteboard everything that we do, like every service that we offer, every product that we sell. And then let's evaluate whether we actually want to be doing these things or if we should cross a lot of this stuff off the list. And one of the examples he gave me of things that were crossed off the list were like rare antique watches. So most of their business is not in rare antique watches. It's in, you know, I don't know, kind of classy, uh, maybe more, you know, luxury mainstream watches. And that's where the majority of the business is coming from. And also that's where all the training, like the people that they have to refurbish these watches, those are the watches that they know how to work on. And they have the tools to work on those watches because, you know, modern watches are probably all using similar parts. And then they would take on these antique watches and it would require an entirely different layer of production in order to fix them up. You need new tools, you need new expertise. And it was just a drain on resources. Now he kept saying yes to it because he just felt like, well, people want antique watches. We should be, we should be providing them. Um, but they realized, no, 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 no. Like this is a drain on the company. Yes. Fine. We will disappoint some small number of people by not like refurbishing these rare antique watches, but in currently serving that small number of people, we are diverting resources away from serving most people, right? So we are spending too much energy on a small number of people at the expense of serving a larger number of people. Let somebody else who specializes in antique watches own that audience. We're going to let it go so that we can focus on, we can make our main thing, our main thing. That's a LeBron James quote. He likes to say, we're going to make my main thing, my main thing. And, um, and, and I, they're right about that, right? Like you got to make your main thing, your main thing. Because if you don't, then, you know, like if, if you don't keep your eye on the main thing, then nothing, everything in our lives flows from some kind of main thing. And if you are not, being careful about fostering that main thing, then all the other things that you're building are going to collapse. You know, it's tricky though, because like you mentioned, you don't, and this we're, we're far afield from recommendations. We'll get to those <laughs> in a second. Cause I want to hear yours. You always have, are exposed to so many interesting things. I'm sure you, you thought about this, but yeah, you mentioned earlier how you don't really have time for hobbies and interests anymore. And I think that happens to a lot of adults, yeah. all, all adults, cause you have to focus on your job and then your family and, and, mm-hmm. So on. And of course, it's great if you love your job, then your hobby, in a sense, like Warren Buffett's hobby is investing. Right. So his life is great. And he's right. the best investor ever because he's able to combine the two. But I find when I do something that's a hobby, there's there's two ways I feel about it. Uh, like either I feel guilty for doing the hobby because I'm not focusing on, mm-hmm. you know, doing the professional things that are my responsibilities or... I try to have a, a big enough, why am I doing this? So that it, it's an umbrella over my hobby. So for instance, yes. me trying to get as good at chess as I was when I was, you know, younger, like 25 years ago after a 25 year break, my bigger why is that, oh, a lot of older people try to get back to the success they had at a hobby when they were younger, but failed to do so because of age related reasons. So a lot of people told me I wouldn't be able to do this. So I'm going to write a book detailing exactly how I'm doing it 
hopefully I succeed in doing it, which has not mm -hmm. happened yet. Hopefully I succeed in doing it. And then my bigger why is I'll be able to write a book, which then ties back into my professional life. Yeah. Uh, so I think very similarly, um, something I like to think about in, in, in evaluating how I spend my time is uh, think of time in terms of output. What would I like to have later as a result of the, the time I'm spending right now? Now, that sounds like it would, it would anchor you to work. And for me, I'll be honest, often it does. So if I, you know, yeah, I used to... I what I used to spend an hour watching a basketball game, which I really enjoyed doing, uh, or you know, looking at Twitter, which wasn't all that enjoyable, but you do it anyway. It's kind of the experience of Twitter. But now I will often think to myself, what would I like? I have an hour. What would I like to say that I have as a result of that hour? Uh, a basketball game that I probably won't really remember all that much, or, you know, I don't know, read this thing that I wrote or listen to this podcast that I produced. I would rather have that. So that's how it anchors you to work. But you have to be more careful about how you think about outcome because there are other outcomes that are important, even if you, like me, don't really have hobbies because you have friends and you want to have good relationships with your friends. You have family. You want to have good relationships with your family. And I have to think, you know, what else do I want to say I have? What I also want to say I have is like a good relationship with my wife, you know, or a good relationship with my kids. And therefore, maybe it's 9 p.m. I should stop working and go downstairs and, you know, catch up with my wife or just watch Better Call Saul with her because then we have a shared experience or something. And that is a great TV show. You should be watching that anyway. We are. We are in the middle of watching it right now. Yeah, we're on season three or four. I don't know. Um, Great storytelling. Oh my God. So good. Like it's just a, it's a beautifully done story, uh, a show. So, um, like I have to stop myself from always thinking that the outcome is work because the outcome isn't always work. Sometimes the outcome is, um, is, is relationships, but you know what? Here's the other thing. Sometimes the outcome is sanity. And if you are working way too much, then you will burn yourself out or frankly, you will just produce bad work. Because late at night, if I try to write something, it's not very good. I'm probably just going to rewrite it in the morning. So why don't I just treat myself well and sit down with my little bass guitar and fiddle around for a little bit and clear my head and be a better worker tomorrow? Because that by itself is a good outcome too. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realized, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way 
to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the, the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, if you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And, you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. I know I'm most creative in the first three to five hours after I wake up. Me too. So that means I won't do other things that many people consider important for their morning routine. Like for instance, I don't work out in the morning. I don't respond to any emails in the morning. Mm-hmm. I usually don't eat in the morning. Like I just get right to you don't the eat? routines that establish my creativity. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm with you there as well. I, 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 I don't schedule meetings in the morning because I know that it's when I do my best writing and creative work and I want to be sharpest and devoted to that. But I do eat because if I don't, if I don't eat by 9 a.m., then my head is foggy. But I guess that's also about knowing yourself. Somehow you're a machine that doesn't need food. Well, so, so, so Jason, what have you been up to other than bass playing? <laughs> no response to that. Um, well, you know, we're, we're here to talk about recommendations. So I, I pulled together a bunch of stuff that I, um, I've really enjoyed this past year. You want to hear something? And you get exposed to a lot of things. I mean, you're editor in chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. That's why you know all these obscure little things about when people are shown 25 jellies, <laughs> what interesting thing happens afterwards. Yeah, that is actually the funny thing is, um, that's not just because I'm editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. That's because I do a thing that we all could do. To be fair, people will probably answer my phone calls maybe easier than they'll answer other people's. But um, but here's something that I, I would just strongly encourage somebody to do. Make, like, make this your 2023 goal is if you are curious about something, call or email somebody who knows the answer. Um, I do that all the time. I have right. a, I have a curiosity. Why did this happen? Or why? Like here, here's an example. One day, we were talking about the word machatunum. Do you know the word machatunum? No. 
So it is a Yiddish word for a relationship that English has no word for. That relationship is the relationship between your parents and the parents of your spouse. So the in-law-to-in-law relationship, my parents' relationship to my wife's parents, right? Follow? That, there is no English word for that. But um, there so like is- you would say, you would say uh, the blah, blah, blah is going well, meaning the I'm relationship- so between I'm, you say so, that, I'm yeah. so glad the Machatunim get along or they would reference it to each other. So my parents, you know, might say, um, you know, we're going to see the Machatunim. But it's a relationship, right? In the way that we have words like brother and sister, but we do not have that word. And I got curious, why? Like why why doesn't English have a word for that? Now, you could Google around for that. And actually, if you Google around, what you will find now is this article that I wrote for Slate about it many years ago. But that that's piece about piece in Slate just came out of me being curious about it and just starting to email linguists and just, and just say, hey, um, I was talking with my family about this word that's really useful, and we wondered why there isn't an English version of it. And I discovered this fascinating insight about like how language is formed based on the needs of a culture. So, for example, Urdu has hyper-specific words for relationships that we only have dull words for. So, for like example, um, for example, grandma. So, the, so, your grandma, that word by itself does not distinguish between the grandmother on your mother's side or the grandmother on your father's side, right? Is this your mom's mom or your dad's mom? Who's, which grandma is this? Urdu has a word for that. Like those two grandmas have are, have different words. I don't know what they are, but they, they have different words. And it goes more granular than that. Now, why? The answer is because Urdu is a language that comes out of a culture in which multiple generations tend to live together. And so if you're in a house and you yell grandma, multiple people might answer, which means that you need more specific language to reference all the people in the home but or in the community. But English, uh, you know, the, the English comes out of a culture in which multiple generations tended not to do that. And therefore, we didn't need to develop that kind of language. The reason why we don't have the word machatunum is, is likely because in English-speaking cultures, after a marriage, the bride moved in with the man's household. So she, there wasn't a merging of families. And sometimes the families may not have even had that much to do with each other afterwards. And so there wasn't a need for a word because there wasn't much of a relationship. And this insight has really helped me like think about language and like why we have the words that we have. And I've just, I, you know, like uh, you get into these interesting conversations about the way that we express ourselves. And then you start to think, well, why do we have, you know, like the, the classic, which I think is actually apocryphal, is, is like Eskimos have 20 words for snow. I don't, I, don't, I don't think that that's actually true, but it comes out of that same kind of true factual basis, which is that language is formed around needs. And if a culture doesn't have that need, then it doesn't have that language. So anyway, so my recommendation to keep in the theme here is if you have a curiosity, call someone very smart or email someone very smart because you will learn a hell of a lot more than you would just by like trying to find some article about it. And, um, and your life will be more enriched. And A, that's great advice. And B, it's doable. Like I, yeah. I started doing a practice like this about 20 years ago. Like I would read a book and if I had a question for the author, and this was pre-Twitter, pre-everything, so actually people were more likely to respond. 
I had a question for the author, I would simply figure out their email, write them, yeah. and ask. And more often than not, that they were to respond. Now I feel it's a little harder because there's so much, um, you know, input going towards writers and other people because of social media. But mm -hmm. but in general, and and then and then it's also related to this is sort of the goal of becoming the type of person that people want to respond to when you ask them a question. Yeah. So that requires work and and effort as well. And 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 often you have to offer something for people to respond to you so you have to kind of like in you know have a disc be able to start a discussion with them that they want to have so yeah. so uh, it's very interesting and but i'm curious about one thing now mm -hmm. what american words or english words are only in english but not in other languages oh that's a good question i yeah i wonder what like relationship words i don't know are. that i asked that i mean i i did english. ask I did ask what old English word, like what words used to be in English, but that we don't have anymore because we we ran out of a need for them. So English contained other words. In early medieval society, a beef between two people could easily spark a generations-long feud. So some families tried to solve things with a high drama union. One family's daughter or sister would be married off to the other family's son or brother, and she was called a... I'm going to absolutely butcher the Middle English pronunciation here. Uh, Fredo Webe, I think, is what I remember the guy saying to me, um, which in the translation was peace weaver. So, you know, there used to be a uh, term, Fredo Webe, wow. which meant a very specific thing that happened, which was marrying somebody off to a family that you are feuding with as a way of trying to create peace in that relationship. Uh, that doesn't exist anymore because obviously we don't do anything like that anymore. Oh, and then there was a, there was another one. So when the, if the Fredo Webe, again, uh, some medieval scholar is going to send me an angry email about this. Um, when, uh, when that person gave birth to a son, the son might be handed over to be raised by her brother. And then that boy had a name, which was the Suestor Sunu, which meant uh, sister's son, but, uh, but it was actually more you know specific than that. So anyway, there are relationships that just don't exist anymore and probably much for the better, but that, you know, used to be in English and now we're not. Okay, that's that's fascinating. You didn't know you were bargaining that one. Yeah. yeah. No, I've, I, I, you know, it's interesting because the nature of marriages have changed. Uh, yeah. And so it's interesting how the words have changed with it. But all right, what's what's another recommendation? Okay. This is this is like advice recommendations. Yeah, yeah, those are advice recommendations, and I got more of those too. But here, let me, I'll give you a couple like just cultural recommendations. I really like this one came out more recently, but I really liked Annie Duke's book Quit. Did you? Um, hear uh, about you know, it? I've read I've read her other two books, and I'm surprised. Um, she I, I haven't I haven't I just saw this one in the bookstore, but I, hmm. I I I was trying to decide whether I should ask her to come on the podcast for it. You really like it? Oh, I you should. should. I you should. I I talked to her. Uh, she was. I, I talked to her for the magazine. She was so smart, and um, uh, yeah. So this she book is really was, smart. This book was great. It was so the the argument is basically like quitting gets a bad rap. You know, like we have that. We have that line, like quitters never win and winners never quit or whatever. Maybe it's backwards. But um, but she says, look, we 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 romanticize grit and hustle. Uh, but the problem is that sometimes, sometimes you are sticking with something and it will succeed as a result of your perseverance. And we we reward that culturally. But sometimes you will stick with something that is never going to work. And what you are really doing is robbing yourself of the time that you could devote to something that will work. 
And we need to know the difference. And that starts by thinking of quitting not as a bad thing or a sign of weakness, but sometimes rather as a simple, smart, tactical decision, a strategy. We need to think of quitting as a strategy. And well, you know, um, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was. Well, I was going to tell you, you. You tell me, and I'll go back to what I was saying. Well, I mean, all of this is related to her poker experience. Like, essentially, you're in the middle of a hand, and someone makes a bet at you, and based on the probabilities of the hands they might have, and the probability that you might have the best hand, and the amount of money that's in the pot, you have an expected value, mm. a statistical expected value of what your hand is worth at that moment, and. What she's saying about quitting is that your expected value of an activity that you're pursuing and persevering in has probably gone below the expected value of other of other decisions you can make, and that's when you should quit. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's a very it's a it's a that's a really good uh, sort of economics based way of thinking about it. She said the the thing that she said that stuck with me the most was she said, "Consider what would happen." if you had to marry the first person that you dated because oh my god right yeah Jeez. just very now i don't even want to think about this <laughs> so here's what would happen you would never date right you would i mean like you just like me go back and think about like well what would have happened if i had to marry literally that first person that i went on a date with but if the rules before you ever went on that first date were you have to marry the first person that you date what would you do? You would never go on a date, right? You would just, you would never do it. So why is it that we can ultimately find the right person for us? The answer is because we are allowed to try and quit a lot of people and relationships beforehand. And that's the way in which we get to good. And so Annie said to me, she's like, look, yeah, I just have to think of it as you are dating ideas. You are dating jobs. You are dating projects. Everything that we're doing is dating. And we have to give ourselves that freedom and flexibility to recognize that some, in fact, most of these things are not going to work out. We may learn something along the way from them that we will then build into the thing that is going to work. But it has to start by realizing that walking away is not failure. It is simply a tactic. Right. And again, the way you know when to walk away, I'm sure she's thinking in terms of expected value, like just like in her book, Thinking in Bets describes, like quitting is a decision, just like persevering is a decision. Yeah. And how do you, the metric is you, you define some metric that you're judging things of, whether it's money or happiness or whatever, and you figure out how to quantify that. And then at any given point, you have the decisions, you have various decisions in front of you. One of them is to continue. One of them is to do something else. And you you determine as best you can the expected values, and you make the decisions with the highest expected values. Yeah, that's right. I that does sound interesting. I I think I will reach out to her to to talk to her about it. I really sure? liked her book, Thinking in Bets. That directly is derived from her you know experience playing poker. Right, right. So yeah, I guess we should maybe have said uh, 10 minutes ago when we started talking about Annie. So she is a former professional poker player who's now uh, like an academic and a, um, a sort of, she, she studies uh, how how people make decisions, I think is how she phrases it, or something like that. Um, but she's yeah. just really insightful. Um, I, some, um, I, I'm going to throw out another thing to you, which is 
the newsletter Garbage Day. Are you familiar with it? No, and A, I love a good newsletter. So I even have some newsletter recommendations myself, but mm. Garbage Day newsletter. Yep. Tell me what it's about. Okay, so Garbage Day newsletter, so it's, it's written by Ryan Broderick, who was a tech or a, like an internet culture reporter at BuzzFeed and then went off and did his own thing. And this is, this is my favorite newsletter. It, um, it is a newsletter about internet culture. And it, it does a mixture of things. It always opens with a kind of longer analysis of something that's happening on the internet right now. Generally something that's, that's kind of making some real news, but not always. Um, you know, like, like recently he did a really good job of contextualizing what happens as a result of, um, Elon Musk, like unbanning all the kind of toxic people on Twitter. Uh, and, uh, it was really, really interesting. And, um, uh, and, but he, you know, he'll, he'll dive into like how and why things are going viral or what this dispute happening on this weird corner of the internet actually is. And then the rest of the newsletter is a kind of mishmash of, uh, of like sort of explanations of weird things that are happening online and then just like really fun tweets and TikToks. And what I love about it is that I, when I was younger and I, I spent a lot of time just like you know, on the internet in a internet culture kind of way. You know, I just was like looking at Twitter for very long and reading people's tumblers or whatever. I felt, I felt like I had a really good, coherent understanding of what was happening online. But now I'm older. I do not have time for that. And so instead, I see whatever little corner of the internet I happen to engage with. And then you see random things kind of burst into public awareness. And then you're like, what is this? And what I love is that he is able to tie all this stuff together into a, into a, like a sort of coherent understanding of the way in which internet culture drives the rest of culture and the way in which like kind of general culture manifests on the internet. And I just find it, I find it so incredibly informative and also in a way sort of soothing because it makes chaos seem rational. And, uh, and he just does, he's fun, he's funny, he's really interesting. So I, I just couldn't recommend it more more highly. Uh, it's a, it's a sub stack. So you just search for garbage day. Yeah. I, I just subscribed and I'm, and I'm, I'm scrolling down this one, the big 2022 garbage report. And it's, it's, well, Oh the yeah. Things you, I, I love that. He, every year, he, every year he reports on his own data and performance, uh, which is really, and, and you know, yeah. let, let's look at this. Like he has, he says he has 39,000. So let's say 40,000 subscribers. Yeah. And let's say they're paying on average Forty dollars. Mm. Okay, I don't know if that's a year or a month. Let me just. Let me it wouldn't just see. I don't, I don't think it would be a month. Yeah. It's, it, oh, yeah. It's it's, it's a year. Right. So, but that's pretty good, though. That's like, that's like. Uh, uh, <laughs> I can't. I can't add anymore. This is one of the things I'm losing <laughs> with age. For, but let's say forty dollars times forty thousand is. Uh, I mean, forty dollars times forty thousand is one point six million dollars. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't like, think he's pulling so, in one point six million dollars, but a, I bet he. But that's fine it. though. Let's say yeah. he's pulling in one fourth of that, like four hundred thousand dollars. He's gonna. He has created a situation where he obviously loves doing this, and he'll be do, able to do this for the rest of his life. He. This is like the perfect newsletters and Substack. I, I think it's a great company. It's like the perfect choose yourself category. Like, yeah. he never has to be chosen by a boss again. And, and so That's many true. other these newsletter writers do that as well. And he puts out something 
it looks like he puts out something almost every day. So this is a lot of work for him. Yeah. But it's great. He loves it. He clearly loves it. Yeah, he totally loves it. And and you're right. You're I mean, you're really you're putting your finger on the this this is shifting economics. Not every writer. I mean, so Substack comes out for people who don't know. So Substack is a newsletter platform and it's specifically designed for creators who want to monetize uh, they're, they're, they're writing their newsletters. And so it's a, you know, it's a pretty simple platform. It's free for anybody to use. So anybody could sign up on Substack and then just start putting out a newsletter. Uh, but the idea is that you will eventually pay wallet in some way, and you could do it however you want. You could put out three newsletters a week and, and, um, you know, uh, uh, people who don't pay get only one of them. And, you know, everyone, people who do pay get all three or whatever, there's a million ways to tier it. And, uh, and when it first came out, there was, as as there always is, this kind of hyperbolic response to it, where um, where people said, "Oh, this is this is trying to um, upend a traditional media as we know it," and like every publication is now going to shutter because everyone's going to leave and start a Substack. And of course, like that's not for what happens. Like what happens is that it every new technology sort of just settles in and it finds its use case, and um, and so after the, oh my God, this is going to destroy all media, there was then the opposite backlash, which was, oh my God, every writer who joins Substack can't make a living off of Substack, which is like, yeah, duh, right? But um, but there are a lot of writers who are building very, very smart things that are unique in a marketplace, like Ryan is, who are able to, and this is what's so wonderful about this, is that they are able to make a good living on a relatively small number of 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 audience members, right? Because at, at Entre, you know, like I'm the editor in chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. If we have, if we if we only reach forty thousand people, we're dead, right? Because we have to. We're working at a scale game where we have to reach millions and millions of people because we're advertising advertiser driven, and advertisers don't pay very much per person that you reach on a mass market advertising basis. But Ryan and many other people can create these products that are actually reaching a smaller number of people, but you monetize them a lot more. And therefore, you don't actually need that many people to subscribe to something that you're producing in order to make a good living off of it. It's a great economic model, not for all writers, but certainly for some. And it liberates them to do really great, unique work. I love a good newsletter. Like there's um there's one called Huddle Up, which you would probably be interested in. Mm. It's the it's the intersection. Uh, between finance and sports. So they always have like oh, that's fun. Great, great stories on like how do the people who perform in the the mid-show of the Super Bowl, how do they make money? And, you know, why is this basketball team valued at this? Or what's the actual specifics of this deal that happened in sports? Or there's always like interesting topic. It's written by Joe Pompliano, whose brother Anthony Pompliano writes one of the biggest newsletters on Bitcoin. Oh. And Anthony's wife, uh Polina. I forget her last name now. Uh, she writes a newsletter called The Profile. She always profiles someone interesting, but then also has links to other interesting profiles. Mm. So it's a lot of great newsletters out there. Yeah, uh, that are that are Substack newsletters. I think Substack did a great thing. And and the interesting thing about Substack is it's not rocket science. But the company only recently started, like in the past few years. Yeah, and I'm surprised it didn't start much earlier, since that's such a a, a great business model. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's it it's the newsletter thing has been interesting because of course newsletters were really big like in the kind of earlier days of the internet and then they disappeared and now they've come back uh in a really big way and you know there's there's a lot of open question about uh, whether there will be newsletter burnout. I mean, I you know, I write a newsletter, uh you know, 
plug Substack or or so actually so I was I was doing it on <laughs> I mean this is this this gets into the fun economics of newsletters should anybody care about this which is that Facebook had launched a Substack competitor called Bulletin and oh, um, I didn't know about this oh yeah. Uh, so they launched a Substack competitor called Bulletin. Um, so here's, here's something else to know about Substack in case, uh, you know, you don't, uh, which is that the way that Substack got itself off the ground. So they're venture back, they had, you know, they had a bunch of money to burn. And what they did is they went around to high profile writers who were at the New York times or at, you know, wherever Buzzfeed and, uh, and offered to pay them, uh, you know, in some, some cases, very substantial amount of money, so six figure offers um, to come and launch a newsletter on Substack, uh, and, uh, you know, basically paying people to come use the product, which is, which is a pretty standard, uh, way that tech companies get high profile people to use them at the very beginning. So they got a lot of writers onto uh, Substack at the time. So, uh, but then there was this, there was this realization that, um, so Substack's terms were that if you took their advance, then you, uh, you got a, a a lesser portion of the revenue from your subscribers as a result of that. And so then there was a debate of like, oh, you know, do people go to Substack and take the money or do they not take the money? Anyway, Bulletin, or, so Facebook comes along and, you know, Mark Zuckerberg likes to see things succeeding in the marketplace and then just copy them. And so he starts this product called Bulletin. And I get a call from Bulletin about two years ago. Uh, and, uh, or from the team that was going to launch Bulletin, Bulletin wasn't a public property there. It wasn't, people didn't know it existed at the time. And, uh, and they basically made me a presentation and the presentation was like, we'd love for you to consider launching a newsletter on Bulletin and we'll make you, you know, an offer. And, you know, I, I won't go into the details of it, but I will tell you that the terms of the deal were better than the terms that Substack was offering. Um, because of course, Facebook has endless money. So, uh, I took it. I took the deal and I, and I used the, the Facebook bulletin platform. And I, I, it was very, very interesting because I got to see from the inside how a company as large as Facebook develops a product. Because the answer was that they basically made a, made a, they made a minimum viable product. They seeded it with about a hundred writers and they had this large team that was there to basically build the product as we used it. So they were asking us for constant feedback. And, uh, you know, we would have these regular calls with their developers and, and tell them what we like and what we didn't like and products that we wish that, you know, they, they would build into it. And, um, and they built this thing up and it was totally fascinating. The team at Bulletin was amazing. I really loved working with them. And then, you know, Facebook, um, pulled the plug on it as, as it, you know, has entered, a. A kind of tough economy over at Facebook. And so um, Facebook just killed Bulletin and a lot of the team got laid off, which was very sad. And uh, I got paid out on my contract. So, you know, I, That's I good. can't complain too much. Uh, and so now I'm migrating over to Beehive, which is a different newsletter platform. Uh, it was B-E-E-H-I-I-V. And interest, so the difference there is that Substack, you can use the product for free uh, but they will take a cut of any revenue that you get uh, for subscriptions. Beehive, you pay upfront to use it. Uh, it's sort of tiered depending on how many subscribers you have. So I have like 20,000 subscribers, so it's it's $99 a month. But once I pay upfront, they won't take any cut of the revenue that I make. And also they have a system to place ads into my newsletter. So anyway, so I'm going to try 
Beehive. In case anybody wants to check my newsletter out, it's, it's sort of it's about how to how to thrive and work and how to overcome obstacles. And you can just find it at jasonpfeiffer.com slash newsletter. But uh, um, but anyway, yeah, so I'm just migrating over to Beehive now. So there's a lesson in the newsletter economics in case anybody cared. What do you use for your newsletter right now? You- well, I use, so I'm I'm actually, as we talk, we are, as you and I talk. Oh, you're on Bulletin. On I December see. 9th, I haven't migrated off of Bulletin yet, but I'm doing that in the next week and then I'm going to Beehive. I never even heard of Bolton. Why didn't they just buy Substack? Or maybe they will. Maybe they tried. Uh, I don't know. It's a good question. I know. I mean, nobody had heard of Bolton because they they never really grew. Um, they signed those hundred writers, and they got some big writers. Malcolm Gladwell was a uh, was a Bolton writer, um, but uh, um, you know, they just they didn't. I don't think they gave it the runway that it really needed to become a real big thing. It just was a side project that kind of fell apart. Well, yeah, I encourage everyone to at least try a new, doing a newsletter of some form. It doesn't even have to be a big newsletter. You could just have your favorite YouTube clip of the day or your favorite TikTok clip of the day so you don't have to do much work. But yeah. just sign up for Substack and try it and and make it free at first so you get lots of readers if you can, if, if your stuff is shared a lot and if your stuff is good. And then you can decide later on if it's a business or not. I agree. Jason, what other recommendations do you have that people entering into 2023 should pay attention to? Okay, I'll do a little, maybe like a little rapid fire. Although much like, uh, you know, we were talking about sort of disconnect, losing connection with things that used to fuel you as a younger person. I used to be so into music. Now I barely have time to listen to music, but two bands that I love, Spoon, amazing, and then The Slackers, which is a ska band that I loved in the 90s. Um, both came out with new albums in this past year, and boy, are they good. So uh, Spoon's uh, Lucifer on the Sofa contains what I think is now like the best Spoon song, um, which is the hardest cut. It gets amazing when a band that you love releases an album, and and it's like the new material feels as good as the material that you're already familiar with. You know, like that's such yeah, it's a like rare so, thing. It's very rare, yeah, actually, because uh, you know most bands have a great album. Most most bands cre- that you know of created one hit wonders and yeah. so their later stuff is not so good like if if bob dylan came out with a new album bob dylan fans will love it probably but like i probably won't relate to it at mm-hmm. all zero right and that's the case with like almost every and that's one of the best ever uh, uh, at least according to the nobel prize committee so uh uh it's very rare that a, a band you like comes out with a new good album yeah i could think of all i could count on like two hands probably not more uh, the number of bands where they have multiple albums that I like. Yeah, and look, and and part of this is not even about quality. It's just about time spent with material, right? Like, it's really hard. If I've been listening to the same couple Spoon albums for like five years, it's really hard for a new Spoon album to compete with that. Those songs have had enough time to to become part of my life. To like, you know, th- there's this. The Spoon has this song called "The Underdog" that in my earlier parts of my career if I was going to do something. I've never heard of them. I've never even heard of Spoon. You've never heard of Spoon? Oh, no. Oh, my God. James. Spoon is, uh, Spoon is, it's, they're, I, they're, they're kind of a little hard to describe. They're, I mean, they're a rock band out of, I think, Austin, Texas. Um, but they're not, they have a, they have a very, very distinctive um, vibe and energy. I, I, if I was a music writer, I'd be able to describe them, but I, I, I can't. Um, I would love to hear 
if anybody is a Spoon fan and has like a good way to describe Spoon, like drop me a line. Um, they're just, they're a really uniquely distinctive sound. Um, it feels like it's like energetic, but the guy's not spending a lot of energy. Like it's, it's, it's I, I don't know. I'm not even going to try, but it, go listen to Spoon. They're amazing. But they have this song called The Underdog, um, which is very much about, uh, you know, sort of the perspective of the, um, the, the being the underdog. There's this line like right into the chorus, which is, um, you have no fear of the underdog. That's why you will not survive. And I love that line. And I used really, to... That's really good advice. Too. Yeah, it really is. It's great advice. Kind of a different way of saying that Intel advice, you know, only the paranoid survive. Yeah, um, yeah, it's true. But it's not as negative. Mm-hmm. It's kind of rewarding the underdog instead of being paranoid. Right. And and I, it's a great pump-up song. So I, um, for years, when I was off to do something that I was intimidated to do. Like, I remember the first time that I like walked to 30 rock to be filmed for like a, you know, like a television, you know, like they would have me come in to comment on the news or something. And, um, like on NBC and the, I remember as I'm walking to the building, I would put the underdog on in my earbuds, uh, to like pump me up. Like I'm the underdog I'm coming in. I've never done this before, but you know, you have no fear of the underdog. That's why you will not survive. Um, I just, I love that song. It's like hard to beat that song because it has played a role in my life. Um, but the hardest cut on this new album is just, it's just a banger. Like, it's just a really, really good, it's like, you know, go out on a hard bike ride and listen to this. And it's not like hard rock. It just, it just has energy to it. It's, it's, it's understated energy. It's beautiful. Uh, and then the other one. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me. Oh, I was just gonna say the other one, which is the slackers. So the slackers is a ska band. And I think that people have like a kind of cartoony understanding of ska where it's like, it's kind of aggressively peppy and annoying. And it's like a bunch of idiots in um, checkered pants, like dancing funny on a stage. But the slackers have always been just a kind of beautiful jazz infused band. And they came out with this, this new album called don't let the sunlight fool you. And it's just, uh, it's just beautiful. Uh, it's perfect. It's perfect music to put on when you have friends over and you're having, you know, a kind of a nice dinner. Like it's just, it's got a good vibe and energy to it. It's, 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 um, it's friendly, but it's not aggressive. Uh, it's great. So those are my two music. And then I will say also just to cap it off on the music thing, I just got these, uh, my old earbuds, my old earbuds uh, got lost as I was traveling. And so I got the, um, we had recommended, we, like we have a tech columnist, uh, an entrepreneur who had recommended these. So I went out and got them. The Bose, they? they're the Bose Quiet Comfort Earbuds 2. I, I don't know what happened to Earbuds 1. I wasn't a part of that, but um, but they are really good. Um, so they're just wireless earbuds. I mean, they they claim to do this technology thing that, you know, I don't know, may or may not be um sophisticated and legitimate, but which is like, like basically you put it in your ear and it sends out a little like audio signal and then sees how it bounces back so that it can like understand the, the kind of specific curvature of your ear or whatever to deliver. But what I really love is like, number one, the sound is great, but number two, it has this amazing noise canceling uh, system built into it. So you put these two into your ears and it does the perfect mix of canceling out annoying ambient sound. Like I put these on when I'm on an airplane, I'm trying to work or whatever, but also without blocking out all sounds. So if there's an announcement or if there's something that you like need to hear, you are not deaf to it. Like it's alert to what is happening around you so that it's taking away the like annoying chatter chatter around you. But if there's something you need to hear, you will hear it. And what's the difference between them and like Apple's AirBuds? Um, 
I so Apple earbuds I don't like because they don't really like seal off in your ear, which means that you're getting a ton of the ambient sound around you coming into your ear at the same time as whatever you're hearing through the earbuds, through the earbuds or whatever the hell they're called. Like they're very hard to listen to on the subway, I find. You know, I live in New York and if I'm on the subway and I listen with the Apple things, um, the noise from the subway is competing far too much with the, you know, it's sort of like, it's the difference between it's a difference between listening to somebody with like crystal clear and listening to them in like an echoey room, you know? Um, so these bows, they just, they kind of seal off the ear. They give you this crystal clear, very intimate sound. And they are engaging with sound in a way in which I think that Apple is just delivering you sound. Yeah. And, you know, I, I find with Apple's air, earbuds, I get like wax in my ear. Maybe that's because they're not fitting correctly. Oh, that's interesting. And so over time, I I get so much wax that I'm practically deaf. <laughs> and so at this point, I haven't like cleared the wax in my ear for yeah. years. So like I'm like 75% deaf at the moment. Yeah, you should go get that. Because of this ear wax. Right. You but should... I, don't, I don't mind being mostly deaf because then if like somebody's speaking to me and I really don't want to pay attention, I could just like turn slightly away and aim my <laughs> deaf ear at them. <laughs> And like, I know I just have to go to an ear and nose doctor and, right. and yeah, they'll take, take it out, out and I'm yeah. fine, but I don't do it, but uh, maybe I'll get these, um, Bosey earbuds. Yeah. I need, I need earbuds for a plane and for like Uber and stuff like that. I'm, I'm sure I annoy the Uber riders or drivers by listening to stuff without earbuds. Oh yeah. And you know, right. That's another thing is like, if you're, Oh, first of all, yes. If you, it's annoying to the, to the drivers, but like the people I really don't understand is like, there will be people on the subway or on an airplane occasionally that are listening to their thing like out loud. And you're like, are you aware that other people don't want to hear your thing? I don't, I truly don't understand what is going through the brain of someone who is yeah. listening to something out loud. Um, but, but here's, here's another thing, uh, which is like the, when you have like the Apple air, 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 what are they called? AirPods, AirPods. Um, and, um, uh, yeah, AirPods. you know, because they are not, because because there isn't like a kind of like a like because they're not blocking out the noise around you they don't have like a sort of sealant around them that's um so that more noise is coming into your ear you have to play it at a louder volume to compete with all that other input whereas the Bose Quiet Comfort earbuds too and you know and and anything else that's like them i mean they don't have a totally unique form factor um you don't have to play it as loud because it is subtracting all the noise around you so that's better for your ears. Oh, all right. This is a great recommendation. I'm going to buy these as well. Yeah. This, this, I really just do this so that I can get a bunch of recommendations <laughs> from really smart people and enhance my life. So uh, uh, here's what I'm going to recommend, though, is people should definitely buy your book, Build for Tomorrow. Great book. We've had you on the podcast talking about it. Yeah, thank you. And you should listen to all the episodes of your podcast, even though you haven't. I, oh no, you have had one recently. You you do podcasts pretty regularly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's they're 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 monthly, so it seems like I'm not putting them out regularly, but I um but I am. Um, but yeah, uh, I th I appreciate that. Yes, rec I re strongly recommend my own book, <laughs> which is called Build for Tomorrow, which is about um how to become more adaptable in your career. So if you feel like you're facing a big change, maybe you got laid off, maybe you're considering a career change, um, maybe your work has just went through a big reorg, whatever it is, this is this is the book for you. And actually, I will. I'll, I'll, I'll cap it, James, with like a recommendation, another kind of experience recommendation, because that's kind of how we started related to my book, which is that yeah. I had to ask, 
I asked people for a lot of favors um, when that book came out. I mean, you included, because I asked you if I could come on the show to talk about the book, and you, you know, graciously said yes. Of course, of course. Um, I love the book. Uh, well, thank you, I, and I really appreciate it, uh, and I'm so glad you did. I. I asked for I asked people for a lot of favors and I'm really bad at asking for favors. I'm not I'm not comfortable with it at all. And it's always because I fear that I am a burden to people for asking a favor of them. Yeah. I I feel like that as well. And and so well then maybe you will take comfort in this thing that I'm going to tell you which is that um almost everybody said yes and many people said I am so glad to be able to finally do you a favor because what I realized was because I don't ask people for favors, I never allowed people to return the favor for me doing something for them, right? Like I have a lot of friends who will ask me to do something, even if it's just, hey, will you look at this? Or, hey, do you know somebody? Can you connect me with that? Or, hey, can you give me some feedback or some advice on something? I love doing that. I love doing favors for people. But the thing is that people want to do a favor for you in return. Otherwise, they feel guilty, like they just got something from you and they never got to give it back. And because I was never asking people for favors, people were feeling a little uncomfortable about me doing nice things for them. So they felt like they finally got to even the balance a little bit. And of course, this creates a virtuous cycle because now they feel a little freer to ask me for something again. But also, I am so grateful that they did something for me that I want to do more for them. And I felt like it was a real relationship strengthener. And then there was, you know, there was one or two people who worst fears confirmed, which is that they they said no. Like there was a there was a a very large uh, podcaster who I'm not, you know, I wouldn't say that I am close friends with this person, but I have done things for them, and we've been in touch by email for years and uh uh and I asked to be on the show and they didn't even respond and then they responded no to my PR and I thought ugh but then I thought you know what better to know now right like I would rather sort people I know into people who are interested in kind of wonderful supportive relationships and people who were just kind of takers uh, that's a good thing to know so fine disappointing that that person said no but also great because now I don't have to do anything else for them <laughs> You know, it's an interesting thing, this whole asking thing. Like in 2014, I had a two book deal with the publisher Hay House, and I wrote a mm -hmm. book called The Power of No, which became a Wall Street Journal bestseller. And uh, and my next book was supposed to be The Power of Ask, mm. which was basically uh, expanding on this discussion we're having right now. And I was just, I just, I couldn't write the book because I am just not good at <laughs> asking for favors. And I couldn't, I, I had to be good at it in order to write this book. I had to at least learn yeah. and describe the process of learning it. I couldn't even get started. I am just not good at asking for favors. I always assume I'm not, I'm a positive, optimistic person, yeah. but I just assume no one is going to say yes to me. Maybe it's from like when I first moved to New York city and after grad school, you know, I, I was born there. I lived there, but then I went away for undergrad and grad when I first was going to move back as an adult. Um, someone told me everything in New York city is transactional. And so, and it really was kind of like that. Like people would only interact with you even at the friendship level, if there was a kind of a back and forth mm. I, and that's how, or at least that's how it seemed to me. Cause I so quickly went into business that all my friendships became interwoven with business yeah. and I've just been never comfortable being transactional like that. And that's how every ask seems to me. And I've never been able to do it. And I, and I've never, very rarely do I see someone go out of their way to do a favor for me, um, unless it's also helping them. So I don't know. Maybe yeah. I'm just uh, critical about it. It's like one of the few things I'm a little 
pessimistic about? Well, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that in New York, because New York is full of people who have made their work a central part of their lives, that a lot of their work- because it's hard to live in New York. Yes, it's, it's expensive right. and it's difficult, and you you kind of have to do that to yeah. survive. I mean, but it's it's like also one of the only reasons to tolerate the difficulties of living here is because you have access to certain things or because like, you know the company that you work for is based here or whatever there's just there are a lot of people who are who are here to specifically to like kick ass in their work and to make that a central focus of their lives and as a result a lot of their friendships are work oriented and and that describes me too to be fair but what i find, what i think of is look yes you're right there are some people who are just transactional and the second that like maybe I don't have the job in which I can help them as much that I will never hear from them again. But there are other people who I think we just connect over shared ambitions and we're excited that we can help each other, maybe even just in advice-driven ways. Like like since we've been talking uh, for the last hour, I've gotten a couple text messages from friends who um, I regularly go back and forth with because they ask me for advice on some work-related thing, and then I'll ask them for advice on some work-related, right? And like that's where it's it's work-related, but it's not transaction. I think that work is actually the thing that can bind the relationship. Um, and so I prefer those to be sure. And you definitely should know the difference. But I think James, you should you that should be a goal for 2023. We can keep it. We can keep yeah. it. We can keep it limited. Ask me for a favor next year. I asked you for one this year. All right. Ask me for a favor next year, and then we'll we'll. Uh, we can talk about it. All right. I, I, will. I promise that I will. I'll, okay. I'll think of a good one. Good. One that will cost you an arm and a leg, but <laughs> I have to say yes. Um, but Jason, once again, it's always so great having you on the podcast. And again, people should buy your book, Build for Tomorrow. And even your newsletter, you haven't put one out. I'm seeing you haven't put one out in a while. No. But you've got good stuff here. Thank so you. No, I put one out today. Check it out on you got it. at jasonpfeiffer.com. Yeah, jasonpfeiffer.com slash newsletter. I, I, uh, I, and you can, you, can, you can join me in the new adventure to Beehive. Anyway, James, it's always a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Jason.